Welcome to Clear Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples. On today's podcast, this is part two of uh, what we might say, Take Up and Read. Uh, Ken has been discussing his apologetics books. Ken, we went all the way back to your first book in 1992 and talked about four of your early books. And on this show, we have four more to bring to our listeners' attention. Yeah, let me, uh, if you didn't listen to our previous program, I talked about the first Christian scholarly book that I'd ever written with Elliot Miller. It was entitled The Cult of the Virgin, looking at Catholic Mariology and the Apparitions of Mary from an Evangelical Protestant point of view. Joe, we also talked about a second book I wrote when I was a researcher at the Christian Research Institute uh, entitled Prophets of the Apocalypse, where we looked at David Koresh, the Branch Davidians. All of that was playing out in 1993 on television, where there was a 51-day standoff. So we talk uh, about people uh, like Koresh and other American messiahs. Um, in addition, we uh, I mentioned a little bit about the first book that I ever wrote at RTB with Hugh Ross and Mark Clark entitled um, Lights in the Sky and Little Green Men. Um, that book addresses the question of extraterrestrial life UFOs and uh, that has that's got a lot of attention remains a topic uh, well in the news even today and then finally we also talked about a book that I think is probably my signature book without a doubt and that is a book where I look at 20 challenges not only challenges to the existence of God but also uh, to the essential teaching of Christianity. I defend the Trinity, the incarnation, and then various objections that people raise. And I'm, I have always been just delighted that that book has been translated into uh, the language of the nation of Indonesia, into Urdu, uh, Pakistan. So that has been a book. Uh, I dedicated that book to my wife, Joan. And that, that book has had a lot of influence, and I'm I'm very grateful and humbled by that. Uh, mm. That the Lord would use, you know, the work that you you put a lot of effort into, and you were one of the editors of that book. And uh, you know, I I have to say, Joe, that my friendship with you has meant a lot to me. Not just personally, we share a lot in common. Uh, you know, we we share. A theological, a similar theological background. Um, you know, we both love sports, but you have had a a big influence on me in the sense that you've helped me to try to try to capture something C.S. Lewis talked about. He said, writing in a way where you combine substance with accessibility, and that's never easy. And you have been a, a very important part of me trying to do that. So, you know, you get a lot of credit for these books, and I'm, I'm sure I don't say that enough. So I want our listeners to know that my friendship with you extends not just personally, but also professionally. Yeah. Well, thank you a lot for that. I appreciate it, Ken. Let's talk about uh, the next four books. And Ken, a question that might come to people's mind is, uh, 
why did you write this book? I, I know I wonder that when I pick up a book by an author. First of all, does the title get my attention? But then I wonder, uh, wonder why they wrote it. You know, what was going on in their life or on their mind? And uh, sometimes you can kind of figure it out, but other times you can't. So uh, maybe as you talk about these four, you can tell us uh, the kind of the background for each one. Happy to do so. Uh, this first book I want to talk about is probably the most extensive book that I've written. Um, I remember it's it's about a hundred thousand words, which is a pretty uh, pretty good number of of words. It's entitled "A World of Difference." The subtitle is "Putting Christian Truth Claims to the Worldview Test," and so this is a book that looks at the question of worldview thinking. And Joe, I wrote it because I think that this is really a very valuable uh, way of thinking about issues. Uh, you know, you can think of a worldview as a person's big picture view of life. Um, you know, the Christian worldview, for example, involves four successive events, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, and you can also think of a worldview as a cluster of beliefs about our most important things in our life, our view of God, our view of reality, of knowledge, of ethics, aesthetics. I have long thought that this is a very helpful way of doing apologetics. And, and again, one of the reasons I, I, I like it is that you can not only take your worldview but you can take the other competing worldviews in the marketplace of idea. I mean, uh, the number of people that say, you know, they don't, uh, they don't want to associate with any religions at all. The, the nons, they have no religious designation. That number is growing. And I, I think that the new atheists, even though I'm not a big fan of their scholarship, I think, they have been part of the, the development of a, of a secular spirit. So you could compare the Christian worldview with the worldview of naturalism. Um, but there are other competing worldviews. Um, Eastern mysticism, you know, pantheism, reincarnation, these components that make up kind of an Eastern mystical, find that in Buddhism and Hinduism, Jainism. And then I, I think another worldview that has developed uh, and is Christianity's major competitor in terms of numbers, and that is the Islamic worldview. How do Muslims, what is their view of God? What is their view of reality, their view of ethics? So I thought that this would be a, a very important way of kind of thinking about the Christian worldview, comparing it and contrasting it with other worldviews, and, and then talking about how do you test them? I mean, a, a very important part of Reasons to Believe and Hugh Ross and his approach to apologetics has to do with this idea of kind of uh, testing things, verifying, falsifying. So I tried to kind of pitch it in, in that kind of context and I also thought to myself, you know, if I'm going to write about these other groups, uh, if I'm going to write about these other major worldviews, and, and again, I think the four major worldviews today are Christian theism, 
Islamic theism, Eastern mysticism, and then naturalism, atheism, secularism. I want to write about them in a very clear and careful way. What I had always hoped, Joe, that if a skeptic or a Muslim or a Hindu, um, and I have a chapter on postmodernism, which is another component in that whole say, kind of, you know, the idea of relativism when it comes to truth and ethics and language. My desire, my hope was if somebody picked up this book, they would recognize their own belief system within it. And so it was very important for me to be to try to be fair, to be to be very careful. And, uh, you know, in the end, I think that these worldviews are inadequate. I think they have challenges. Uh, I think Christianity provides the best explanation for the reality that we encounter in our life and in the world. And so I, I see this as a very important book in kind of laying the foundation for somebody to learn about apologetics. Because I talk about nine tests. I have two chapters on logic and critical thinking. So it really is kind of a, a book that you can build your apologetic uh, foundation upon. And, and in fact, uh, one of the things that has really pleased me about this is I have had people contact me who've used this book in doctoral programs. I've also had people who have used this book in homeschooling where they were teaching people. And I thought, well, there's that emphasis again that Lewis talked about of substance and accessibility. And so I think that this has been a, a very uh, important work for me. And, uh, uh, you know, in our podcast, going back to uh, our first approach to straight thinking, and uh, for a time we had a podcast entitled The Imago Day, and now with clear thinking, that worldview idea has always been a very important part of it, as well as logic and clear thinking. So I th I don't know, this might be my second most significant work, uh, probably the most extensive book that I ever wrote. Mm, yeah. Well, as you mentioned, you, you just never know who might uh, benefit from uh access to these kinds of works. You you talked about your other book, Without a Doubt, and the influence it's had internationally now. Uh, people can take your book uh, and just be in on a university campus or in a neighborhood now. I mean, anybody who lives in a country like the United States or Canada or many other countries, you're going to have neighbors now from all over the globe, and they're going to have worldviews uh, that are probably different from your own. So it's very helpful to see what some of these are and to apply tests and even tests for the Christian worldview. So uh, I know that's part of what I appreciated about your book, and I, I trust others will as well. Well, again, I mentioned that uh, that period between my work at CRI and later at RTB, where I was teaching philosophy and um, Joe, I had Muslims in my class, I had Hindus, I had atheists, and teaching introduction to philosophy, introduction to logic, world religions, ethics, 
I realized, wow, we live in a very diverse world where people have lots of different beliefs. And this, the, the first idea of a book like this was, was, how can I help people make sense of all these beliefs, these ideas? So again, uh, without a doubt and a world of difference, I think came out of that teaching experience where I realized we live in a diverse place with lots of ideas. How do we discover the truth? How do we test them? Yeah. Uh, Ken, for your next book, one of the things that I've come to appreciate about you, and I'm sure others have as well, is that you talk about uh, the Christian faith being a historic one, a historical faith. Um, and Christianity has had ideas that you've called dangerous. So uh, in what sense are they? And tell us about your book, your next book in that regard. Yeah, thank you for that. I I, I actually think this book, Seven Truths That Changed the World, the subtitle includes that controversial line, Discovering Christianity's Most Dangerous Ideas. I think this is probably the maybe the most unique book I've ever written. I tried to intentionally to do something very different. A dangerous idea, Joe, in philosophy, in theology, or in science is an idea that turns the paradigm upside down. It's considered dangerous because it changes your orientation. Um, I think Darwin's dangerous idea of evolution, clearly that way. Um, and there have been other dangerous ideas that have come into the world. But I thought to myself, you know, I think Christianity has been, in the best sense of the term, a, a religion of dangerous ideas. I mean, the idea that not all dead men stay dead, I mean, everybody knows they're going to die. I, you know, you drive by the cemetery, uh, you get older, you realize, wow, uh, you lose your parents. Um, death is not if, it's when. Uh, well, here is a message that's right at the heart of the Christian faith that says Jesus conquered death. And I've never been able to get away from that. I've always thought that's right at the heart, right at the heart of our faith. And I have intentionally tried to talk about historic Christianity. I know many of my friends who are evangelicals, they talk in very personal terms about their faith. And I think that's perfectly appropriate. But I also want to remind people that Christianity has been around for 2,000 years. It's developed. It's transformed people's lives. Christians have been thinking about these ideas long before Billy Graham came on the scene. So what I do in this book is, again, I think something that's, uh, I think it's very different than what I had written before. I look at Seven ideas that I consider dangerous. Uh, I mentioned the first one, not all dead men stay dead. So I look at the resurrection of Christ. What does it say? Uh, could Jesus be God? Could this be the, the answer for the human condition? Uh, the second dangerous idea is the incarnation. God walked the earth. I mean, I'm always struck by that uh, Apollo astronaut who said, you know, it's an amazing thing for a, an astronaut to walk on the moon. It's a greater thing for God to walk on the earth. And I, 
I think about that a lot during the Christmas, the Advent season, that I believe God took a human nature and became man. Boy, that's a turnaround. I mean, the world had lots of deities, but the idea that God would take a human nature and live uh, a life as a man, wow, that's that's a dangerous idea. Third, a fine-tuned co cosmos with a beginning. I mean, Joe, in the early part of the 20th century, most scientists thought we were going to discover the universe uh, was eternal, but the 20th and 21st century has led to a lot of great information about the the universe having an origin, having a beginning, being uh, exhibiting complex fine tuning. So I look at the doctrine of creation in that one. Uh, my fourth point, clear pointers to God. Uh, you know, I think there are lots of very good arguments and reasons for believing that God exists, that God explains uh, what we know about the world in which we live. It explains a lot about us. We're great and wretched, as Blaise Pascal described human beings. It's able to account for uh, objective morality. So I kind of look at those arguments as pointers, not, not necessarily as proofs, but as pointers, the best explanation, kind of abductive reasoning. Then a uh, another dangerous idea, I think Luther's idea that, you know, you're not justified by works, you're saved by grace, through faith, in Christ. Uh, that What a dangerous idea that is. I mean, people all over the world believe that, you know, if God exists, he's going to accept me because... You know, I try to live a decent life. I'm not as bad as Hitler. I may not be as good as Mother Teresa, but maybe there's a God will grade me on a curve. I mean, this idea that you're saved by grace, you're saved not by what you do, but what God has done in his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, the Reformation, I think, has changed the world because it was really a dangerous uh, way of thinking. Then I address humanity's value and dignity. Uh, you know, why is abortion wrong? Why is euthanasia wrong? Because people have dignity and value. Why? Because they're made in God's image. Christianity's was a dangerous idea. The Romans didn't believe that. The Greeks didn't believe that. Um, you know, they, they believed in slavery. They believed the Greeks were superior to the non-Greeks. The Romans were superior to the non-Romans. Men were superior to women. And then Paul in Galatians 3.28 says there's no difference between Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male or female. All are one in Christ. What a dangerous idea that we need to convey today, where people constantly talk about race, gender, and class, oppressor and oppressed. Well, Christianity has changed uh, society. And then my last one, the seventh dangerous idea is the good and suffering. I mean, you know, pain hurts. Uh, it's not fun to suffer. And the worst thing in the world is to watch people you love suffer. Well, where's God in all of that? And does God have a good reason for allowing suffering? And then, of course, the gospel that out of the worst injustice in the world, where the Son of God is, is crucified, comes salvation for all beliefs. So that 
that idea that God is working in our pain, in our suffering. He has good reasons. So I tried to do something very different in that book. And um, I think, Joe, I don't, I don't know what your thought is about this, but I think that probably of all the books I've written has the best balance between uh, substance and accessibility. I just think it hit it pretty well in, in that way of doing. Uh, it didn't start off all that well. It, it didn't sell all that well initially, but it, it has kind of picked up steam. And uh, I've used it as a textbook. And uh, so it it seems like it's having some influence. And uh, again, I was kind of, boy, I'm going to try something new here. I don't know how it's all going to kind of work out, but I, I think it has. It, it, in fact, it led to the next little book I want to talk about, Baker Books, who is the publisher of Seven Truths That Changed the World, they um, said, look, we'd like to take a chapter out of that book and make it an e-book, make it um, uh, a Amazon book. Um, and they, um, they had a Kindle edition. And so they took the first chapter of that book, which is, again, not all dead men stay dead. And so that's been a little book, ebook in and of itself uh, is the first, you know, first of anything I'd written that had been part of an ebook. So I, I'm excited about that little book. I think there, there is a lot to it. And um, again, I, I do like the idea that I went back to historic Christianity and tried to say, hey, look, these are ideas that have transformed Western civilization, and they're Jewish and Christian. They're biblical in orientation. Yeah, that's great, Ken. So that's uh, three. And now this fourth one, you know, I, I picked up uh, your fourth little book here, and you'll tell us the title in a moment, recently because of all the uh, news that has been uh, at our fingertips internationally. And I wanted to see what uh, you had to say again, and that I found helpful from a Christian perspective. So tell us about that one. Yeah, Seven Truths That Changed the World came out in 2012. In 2013, I put out a small book. Uh, in fact, it was uh, the first RTB Press book. Uh, it's entitled Christian Endgame, the subtitle Careful Thinking About the End Times. Now, so it's a little bit of a controversial book in terms of RTB. Uh, there was question of, you know, should we write about eschatology? We're about apologetics. We're about science apologetics. Why necessarily look at, you know, the question of end times and things like that? So there was kind of some pushback about it. But of course, my approach to this topic, Joe, I think is is very different than most people who write about eschatology or end times, prophecy, the book of Revelation, Daniel. My focus was really not about establishing, you know, the right millennial view or the right view of the rapture. My approach was apologetic. Um, I have been reading about, you know, Christianity for a long time. I knew that in the 19th century, people predicted the second coming and it didn't happen. And out of that came all kinds of strange ideas. 
a lot of times people don't appreciate that Seventh-day Adventism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Mormonism to some extent, all came out of that 19th century where people thought, you know, the Lord's going to come. Something's happening here. The world's getting better or the world's getting worse. So my focus on this little book, and again, it's my smallest book. It, it is a small paperback. It's I think it's only 88 pages, but what I what I do in uh, Christian Endgame, and and again this this is this has influenced uh, the way we do this podcast. Um, I often like to talk about the how, not what, how, not what, and what I mean by that is, I'm hoping my books will help people to learn how to think and discern and reflect about issues. I don't try to tell them necessarily what to think or to agree with me. Now, to some extent, I do. Um, I don't think Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons are, are Christians because they deny the essence of Christianity. They deny the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. Um, so I'm not about not critiquing, but Christians have had a lot of ideas through the centuries about the end of the ages. I mean, St. Augustine, my arguably my favorite Christian thinker, when he died in 430, he could hear and smell the Greek, uh, excuse me, the, the uh, German uh, barbarians at the gate. They mm. were burning the city and he could hear the drum beats. You know, he wasn't, is the world coming to an end? The Roman Empire, Rome had been sacked in 480. Uh, undoubtedly, I think Augustine thought, this must be the end of our world. I mean, I mean, we look at our world today, and I have some pretty serious concerns about the relativism in our society, the tribalism in our, our world. Um, I don't know, I've never had as many doubts, I think, about the the American state as I do now. But, you know, think back to Augustine's time where the Roman civiliz civilization itself was coming apart. Well, what I began to see is this, that if you don't do apologetic, if you don't do eschatology well, if you don't do it carefully, if you're not faithful to scripture, if you're not fair-minded, Doing eschatology badly leads to all kinds of apologetic problems. So in that little book, for example, I, I talk about uh, Harold Camping, who in 1994 predicted the second coming of Christ. And I remember, again, the day came, but the Lord didn't. And people just began saying, these crazy Christians, they... They got this from the Bible. The Bible's not true. Uh, then camping turned around and did it again in 2011. One time wasn't enough. Mm. William Miller did it in the 19th century. Uh, I could mention other names. Um, you know, there, there have been leading evangelical authors who have predicted dates Every time in the past 2,000 years that people have predicted a date for the second coming, they have been wrong. Because Jesus himself says, no one knows the day or the hour. Um, so in this book, I try to do something very different. I don't give you my views. 
I explain what the amillennial view is, what the postmillennial view is, what the premillennial view is. I talk about differing approaches to understanding apocalyptic literature. And I give strengths and weaknesses for all the views, but I don't tell you my view. I'm not trying to persuade you to come to my conclusion because I think the thing that I can do that will be even be better is to help you approach theology as it applies to the end of the ages with real care and uh, real respect. So I say things like, maybe we should hold our views about the end of the world tentatively. It's not that they're unimportant. I mean, the second coming of Christ is an essential doctrine. It's mentioned clearly in the creeds that Christ is going to come to judge the quick and the dead, the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. So I see the second coming as an essential Christian doctrine, but the when, the how, and the all you know the other issues relating to it, I, I think we need to be respectful of other people's views. I think we need to we need to realize that Christians need to be circumspect. The Bible does have a lot to say about eschatology, but how do we understand this apocalyptic literature? So. Again, it's a small book. It's only 88 pages. Um, it's very different than any other eschatology book in that, again, I talk about um, basically here are the views. Here's how we can think through them carefully. Here's some good questions to ask. I also talk about how does, how does your view of the second coming of Christ affect your life now? How will it influence you when you experience death. Uh, and I give kind of rules in terms of having a balanced perspective. So even though this is uh, not a traditional apologetic topic, and it, it, it kind of went down a, a little bit of a different direction than typically what we do here at Reasons to Believe, I think in the end, it, it's been a very valuable book. I'm, I'm trying to educate yeah. Rather than tell people, hey, you have to be a premillennialist or you have to believe in a pre-trib rapture, or, you have to do this. It's it's really a book to try to help people think about these things. Yeah, well, thank you again for writing it. One of the things I appreciated about it, as I mentioned earlier, I picked it up recently because I knew that you covered things in a brief manner and you're very good at organizing your thoughts. So one can look at a chapter here, and a chapter is just a few pages, and you'll get um, your, your thoughts and how to look at things. And it's helpful because, you know, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, with a lot of things happening in the news, sometimes I see just one view represented, and I want to jump in and say, hey, there, there are a couple other views on this. But then um, I'm also mindful that you have kind of uh, like a mere Christian eschatology in yeah. mind. I wonder if you might talk about that idea of being charitable to all the views. Yeah, thank you for that, Joe. I, I, I actually think if I had to do this little book over, I might propose a different title, maybe maybe mere Christian eschatology. Again, uh, anybody who knows you and I and knows this program knows that we talk about C.S. Lewis, who I think is arguably the most important important Christian apologists of the 20th century. 
But he talked about mere Christianity. When he wrote his little book, Mere Christianity, he sent it to a, a Baptist theologian. He sent it to a Methodist theologian, an Anglican theologian, a Catholic theologian. And he was talking about common Christianity, kind of creedal Christianity, if you will. And so he wasn't trying to persuade somebody to join a particular denomination. He's trying to expose kind of the, the essence of the Christian faith. Well, I uh, when I started thinking about eschatology, I thought, wow, th it seems to me the heart of Christian eschatology, or uh, eschatos is the Greek word for last, so last things or last days. I started thinking to myself, you know, the, maybe the heart of the Christian eschatology it doesn't get a lot of attention. People are always talking about the so-called rapture, the taking up of the church, or the millennium. Will it be before or after? Uh, lots. Who's the Antichrist? Pin the tail on the Antichrist. Joe, I have to tell you, you know, in the late 70s and 80s, when I was reading uh, some very influential people in the field, uh, you know, they were saying the you know, the, the Antichrist is going to come out of Europe. Now uh, there's a shift. The Antichrist is going to be a Muslim. Uh, hmm. Maybe, you know, some new ideas. Well, what I like to talk about, and I, I again have a, a whole section, uh, chapter three is a mere Christian eschatology. And I say, hey, there, there are views that all conservative, Orthodox Christians, lowercase o, we all believe. We believe in the second coming. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. We believe in the final judgment. We believe that there will be a, a new creation. We believe that there will be an eternal state where we'll have the resurrected body, where we'll have the beatific vision, where we counter God. And I, th I thought to myself, wait a second here, right? That whole section of these great, hopeful, purposeful doctrinal truths, they get very little discussion. Everybody wants to debate the millennium or the rapture or, you know, preterism or whatever it may be. And I thought, huh, I, I think that there's some content here. And, and again, um, I think part of my personality, Joe, is I tend to be ironic. I tend to look for unity. Um, I, I think it's kind of the way I'm wired. You know, when I look at the Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox issue, the thing that strikes me most, I'm not lost on the differences. They're real. They may be intractable, but the common ground is enormous. And I think, wow. So I thought maybe I can encourage greater a greater sense of unity. And out of books like that really came my thinking that I want Christians to think about truth, but also about unity and also about charity. That, um, you know, the, the way to converse with other Christians who have differing views of our than our own, it's not to attack them personally. It's not to dismiss them. But it's to try to build some kind of dialogue. Hey, can we build on this? And then when we get to the real differences, maybe maybe our views will, 
you know, will have a little easier way of communicating them. So I like this little book. Uh, I think it's, uh, again, it's the first RDB Press book. And I still believe very deeply, Joe, that um, maybe the central calling of my, my vocational life is to be a teacher. And one of the things, again, I try to do is I try to expose people to all the major views. And then slowly and carefully, we'll, we'll test them, we'll evaluate them. You know, I, I am a Protestant Christian. I'm not Catholic. I'm not Orthodox. Um, you know, I hold particular views, but I, I want to approach them in a mere Christian context. And, and again, I think one thing that I, I really want to communicate in this series about the books I've written is that other people have influenced me. Uh, a lot of my ideas came from people like Walter Martin. A lot of my ideas came from C.S. Lewis, from St. Augustine, Blaise Pascal, uh, Norman Geisler, Ronald Nash. Uh, I, I didn't mention in the previous program that Ron Nash wrote the foreword to my book, Without a Doubt. Ron had a big influence on me. He was a first-rate philosopher very sophisticated theologically. Hugh Ross has had a big influence on me in the sense of thinking about science. How, how can I package the Christian worldview in a context that includes the study of the sciences? So I've had a lot of people influence me. And part of, uh, part of I think, you, you know, when I think about the Ten Commandments, Joe, and it says, you know, honor your father and mother, I like to tell people about who my mom and dad were and why I think they were important in the way they lived their lives. I think it's also important when I come to Christianity to say, look, this isn't just my idea. Uh, I took this from others. They took it from others. This is rooted in that Christian tradition. And it goes back to the apostolic church. It goes back to the Judeo-Christian scriptures. And uh, like one of my favorite contemporary theologians, Tom Oden, Joe, I don't want to have any original theological ideas. I hope when I die, people say he was a historic Christian, first and foremost. You know, again, we debate issues of baptism, predestination, popes, all kinds of issues in which Christians disagree. But I think you've got to have historic Christianity first, and then you can gravitate to some of these important differences. Great. Well, thank you for uh, articulating your ideas and talking about your books and the uh, passion that uh, you wrote with. That that's evident in, in the book because your thinking is is clear as... <laughs> It's it's no uh, it's no mistake that uh, this podcast has that title, clear thinking, and I think your thinking is is clear and it comes across in an accessible way. So, thank you for your books. That little book that we were just talking about, Christian Endgame, um, you you mentioned earlier on that uh, this has become an an apologetics issue because if we're not careful about our thinking then we can be criticized for it. And then we have to kind of clean up the mess we've made. So uh, it's, it, it behooves us to know uh, how to think carefully about uh, end times and 
you've helped us in that regard with this book. So thank you for that, Ken. Well, you know, Joe, I, I only want to say that you have been a big, another a big influence in my life, you and Dave Rogstad. I mean, you know, we've, we've had many podcast episodes going back, I think as early as 2011. And then with, you know, uh, creation update was even before that. So we've had a lot of these programs, especially you and Dave, you've influenced my thinking. And, and again, I really want people to, to appreciate that it really is important that non-Christians perceive us as being people who handle truth very carefully because it's a sacred thing. And so, you know, I appreciate all of these people who have influenced me. And I hope that these books we've talked about and, and there are some more books we'll do in future programs. Uh, but these are books that influenced me that came from people who influenced me. And I hope that they'll influence others. Great. Thank you for that. As Ken mentioned, we're going to talk about uh, some more books that Ken has either authored or co-authored. So more coming up. And if you don't have these books, you can go right to RTB's website and do some website and do some shopping there. Be sure to pick them up and read them. They're eminently readable and they will help you as they have me and many others. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of Ken's books. You can find Ken on social media uh, on X. His handle there is at RTB underscore K samples. Let us know your comments and questions, what you think about Ken's books or this podcast. We hope this podcast serves as a compliment to the uh, books that Ken talks about. And uh, you will let us know what you think. And we'll be glad to take up your comment or question here. Get clear thinking sent to your device by subscribing to the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and most podcast services. For Ken Samples, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Clear Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.